You're listening to Paris Talks Marketing. My goal with this podcast is to dig deeper into digital marketing success than any other marketing podcast out there, to reveal the growth marketing strategies and tactics that are working today, empowering growth at amazing companies and organizations. Keep listening as I interview founders, CEOs, and marketing leaders from all around the world, primarily from companies in the tech and software as a service industries. Now, on with the episode. Hi, everyone. Today, my guest is Cody Lee, who is the VP of Growth Marketing at Summit Partners. Since 1984, Summit Partners has invested in more than 500 companies in technology, healthcare, life sciences, and other growth industries. As a member of Summit Partners' peak performance group, Cody helps manage marketing teams across the portfolio to identify and execute growth marketing strategies that build long-term value. Prior to Summit, Cody was a partner at Lever and Dial, an investment and advisory firm dedicated to helping growth companies scale with world-class marketing. Previously, he was head of digital marketing at an integrated creative and production agency. In addition, Cody was a foundational member of the paid advertising team at Software Advice, acquired by Gartner, a premium software lead gen firm and trusted resource for software buyers. Cody began his early career as a copywriter. Cody, thanks for being here and welcome to the show. Uh, It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, I've got a bunch of questions for you. I hope we can get through them. Uh, A lot of them are, are related to your personal career and development. Some are related to your experience in the VC world. And before we get into the questions, could you just take a minute to introduce yourself and introduce Summit Partners to our audience? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so hi, everyone. I'm, I'm Cody. I, I won't do a per, uh, professional bio because Paris just did a great one. But um, I'm originally um, from Chicago, Illinois, in uh, the States, for those of you who are in the global audience. Um, I'm currently in San Francisco right now uh, with my wife. She's a first grade teacher and an absolute hero. Um, I have the pleasure of connecting with great marketers across the portfolio at Summit's Peak Performance Group. Um, I'm actually not the head of the group, um, but I do lead our marketing practice within it. And we're a free on-demand resource for all of our portfolio companies. And as Paris mentioned, you know, Summit's a, a, a growth investor primarily. Um, so we invest in, in high growth companies across multiple sectors, um, primarily in North America and Europe. And I've been here for about two years. So I, I've seen a lot um, and it's been a, just a tremendous experience. And Happy to share more about my background and and also what I do professionally. Great. Well, let's start with the background, and I'm going to go way back because I learned that your parents founded and led an ad agency for decades. How did this impact your career and your professional development? And what did you take from any of that experience which might impact you and help you today? Yeah, that's that's going way back. That's like, I, I like to say that, you know, marketing and advertising is basically in my blood, right? I mean, I was born to parents who owned an ad agency together. Um, and I think, you know, there are three kind of main things that I learned, you know, one was entrepreneurship, right? How do you run a business? Um, how do you care for your people? How do you care for your clients? Um, obviously, the second, you know, fundamental marketing and advertising skill development, I was around it every day of my life. Um, and then three, I think professionally and just kind of personally, you know, I was interacting with colleagues and clients from a really young age. I mean, at 15, every summer starting from age 15, I was working full time at an agency in downtown Chicago. I literally was this like young kid taking the train, commuting to the office in the big city, um, waking up early, you know, doing the commute grind. Um, and so from, from age 15 on, you know, it's like I had a great exposure to so much um, project management, copywriting, and it, you know, that eventually catapulted me into some of my early career after college. But um, I definitely attribute a lot to, to my parents and, and to that experience. That's great. So it's in your blood. Yes. So now, uh, I imagine that you 
you talk to different types of marketers every day and you've really seen a lot of the elements of success. What do you think really makes up the, what is in the DNA or in the blood of successful marketers? What type of skills or personal character that you see consistently in successful marketers? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I definitely see a lot of, a lot of successful marketers and um, you know, when you work across different business models, like I do, right. I, I interact with B2B marketers, B2C marketers, e-commerce, healthcare, right. You try to have to, you have to find something that kind of transcends, you know, where you work. And I think really like the best marketers are connectors and, and movers, right. I think they connect the commercial with the customer and they move people to action. They both internal people, right? Their teams, their colleagues, as well as, you know, external, obviously prospects and customers. Um, I think, you know, a lot of marketers are great at the customer part. Um, a lot of marketers are great at the commercial part, like from a data point of view, right? A lot of performance marketers. Um, and some are great strategically across both, right? But they lack the know-how to get it done. And so it's, it's really the combination of all of those things, the connecting the commercial and the customer, and then the ability to actually operationalize and move people um, that I see is just a really powerful and unique converse, uh, combination. Mm -hmm. Great. And if we go back to the early stages of your career, I understood that you started off as a copywriter. And I think that for a lot of people in marketing, I think that's a great place to start because you're really starting with the message itself. And ultimately, like you said, you've got to make a connection. You've got to take a certain product or a service and the value proposition connected with that. And you've got to deliver that message to somebody. And I wanted to introduce also the concept here of, of, of organic and SEO. And what do you think, in your, in your opinion, how important are these copywriting skills? Have they, have they stayed with you through your career? And is it also something that you encourage the marketers that you advise today to, to continue to do. Absolutely. I, I think you said it best, right? Copywriting is a way to connect, right? It's, it's foundational to marketing and advertising. It, it has been forever. I mean, it's, it's the, like one of the most timeless things because it's based on people and based on psychology, right? Like what moves you, what resonates with you, what will get you to do something right? Persuade you to action. Um, you know, if you look back at, you watch Mad Men or see some of these agency and advertising greats like Ogilvy and, and Eugene Swartz, you know, they were all master copywriters. And, and then I think interestingly, over the last like 10 years, you know, when digital marketing started coming on the scene, you know, the amazing targeting abilities that you had, the data and the tracking, it was like the pendulum swung away from, oh, that creative, that like, brand stuff, that content stuff, like, we don't need that, right? Let's just be obsessed with data and targeting. And now, you know, you're seeing this pendulum swing back, right? Mm -hmm. um, and people are remembering, oh, yeah, like, the power of copy, the power of creative, the power of the message. Um, I'm sure you've seen, you know, some of these studies on, you know, what are the factors that drive performance and some of these studies say that creative accounts for like 60% of performance, um, mm -hmm. which is huge. And so really being able to, to think about that and, and, and think about your, your customer and how are you connecting with them in language, um, it's super important. And it's you know easy, right, in quotes, easy, because anyone can really write. It's not as hard as say video or, or design or, or something. Um, but it's really hard to do it well. Um, but if you mm -hmm. can, it's super scalable. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with that notion of the, the pendulum swinging back. I think what is swinging that pendulum back to creative is AI because AI is starting to fill a lot of the functions, the, the really rigorous manual data crunching and deep analysis type of functions that digital marketers have done maybe in the last 10 or 15 years, AI is just eating away at that. And it should. And, and ultimately a lot of the, the things like the real-time bidding, and that's, that's the start of it. But 
as AI is taking away a lot of these rigorous data activities, I think that's that's why um, the, the real differentiator again will become your your core message and your your creative. And I think that the creative teams are going to uh, rise again in relevance in in digital marketing. And I think it's it's happening now. We're starting to see it. Even if we look at something like uh, we're going to get in the weeds here for a second, but Performance Max, which is a new campaign type for Google Ads. This is, sure. this, is, this is really the best example where Google says, hey, guys, just give us your creative. And we're going to take care of the rest. That's it. We have AI here that's going to optimize the journey. You don't even have to have campaigns in YouTube or display or search anymore. We'll take care of that. You just focus on the creative. We're going to tell you which ones are working. So you do more of that. We're going to tell you which ones are not working so you can stop doing that stuff. And that, to me, is an early sign of this pendulum that's swinging back to creative. And I think that the digital marketing agencies like ourselves are, would be smart to start really investing heavily in creative teams in-house. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, as, as someone who, you know, started as in, in, in paid search really after a copywriting, I got my first job in, co- in paid search because I said, well, you know, I, I studied poetry in college, believe it or not. And I said, well, a paid search ad is kind of like a sonnet. I mean, I've got, you know, rules that I have to follow and I have to connect with my audience and I, I bet I can improve your click-through rate and I bet that'll have, an, you know, an impact on your funnel. And, you know, to their credit, they said, oh, let's give, let's give this kid a shot. Um, and I think, you know, that it's such an important component. Um, but, you know, you're so right. Like, we had this kind of control, right? And now we have to, we, we're having to relinquish control to AI, um, and there's a tension there because, you know, in one case, it's like, do I really want to give Google my credit card and allow them to do everything? <laughs> um, because are they just going to take my money? And I think, you know, depending on your scale and sophistication, there may be ways that you can, you know, have your own kind of internal data system and, and do it better. And you should always have like checks and balances on, on, on AI. Um, but absolutely. I mean, focusing on creative is such a massive lever right um and what i think is is important is that it's not either or right it's not this battle you see this battle between kind of brand and performance sometimes it's or content and paid right it's it's both it's the hybrid i mean literally every touch point with your customer or prospect is a brand touch point right and everything that you do and put out into the world you could think of as content or creative and so it's trying to really find this blend that's going to be the best way of getting your content in front of the right customer to make that connection and to move them to action, right? And it's just mm-hmm. what's the mix and tool set that's going to be the best at accomplishing that goal. Yeah. So, Cody, when I was doing some research in LinkedIn, I noticed some recommendations on your profile that that really stood out. And there was a common theme, which is something along the lines of he never stops learning. <laughs> and marketing is, is still changing faster than ever. So can you tell us how, how you keep your knowledge current and how do you stay on the cutting edge of this field? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great comment. And I, I appreciate everyone who says that about me. Um, I think it's, it's fundamental. I mean, in any field, right? It's like, you have to have a growth mindset. You have to always be learning um, because everything is changing before us faster than ever with technology and with the global connections and with how people want to change and how they want to buy, right? Um, So I think a lot of things change rapidly, like tactics and tools and the best ways to connect. Then there's lots of things that are evergreen that don't really change, right? Like the fundamental psychological principles of human connection and like how people act and why. Um, and so I spent a lot of my education and I do a lot of reading of, of, of books, like old books. You see some of my libraries like 1940, what are you doing reading that? And it's like, well, those fundamentals haven't changed, right? And so study psychology, study neuroscience, study the brain. Um, and so I, I do a lot of reading. I think the other aspect is I just learn constantly from the incredible marketers, uh, in the summit partners portfolio, right. That I get to interact with all the time. And one of the things that I like to say is, you know, 
all these companies are are succeeding, right? But they're all succeeding in different ways. It's just amazing. And so how do you learn from those successes in different ways and, and cross pollinate them, right? Learn from peers, learn from thought mm-hmm. leaders. My wife says I'm addicted to LinkedIn. I mean, I don't know about you, Pat. I think you like LinkedIn a lot, but um, I, I, I yeah, I would say if 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 you're addicted, then I I'm I'm at another level now. I think it's uh, I spend a lot of time. In yeah, LinkedIn. I spend a lot of time following people on LinkedIn, um, and then I have kind of a forcing function for myself. And I think you know if if you're listening, one of the best ways to learn is to try to teach others or to try to capture your learning. Right, write it down. Um, and so I write a newsletter once a week for the summit portfolio. Um, and every week I have to sit down and I have to have a topic and I have to have articles. And so it forces me, I probably read 50 articles a week cause I'm subscribed to 10 newsletters and I'm trying to find connections across all these different business models. And so it's just forcing yourself to, to be humble, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know everything. And so trying to learn from others, trying to see what's happening in the world, trying to stay on top of it um, so that you don't get whacked over the head with a change that happened five years ago that now is mainstream, right? Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh my gosh. Uh, so it's just yeah. trying to stay. What is this core web vitals thing? I might've missed yeah, it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> my website traffic just bombed. What happened? Yeah. yeah. Hey, would you mind sharing uh, one of those newsletter titles that you're that you're currently really enjoying? Uh, yeah, in terms of you know a subscription, so I probably s- subscribed to Search Engine Land for like ten years mm-hmm. and like a lifer on Search Engine Land. I think they are great. Yeah, that's at, a classic. Yeah, um, you know, I, I think there are some others um, in the D 2 C space. There's one um, written by Grow and Co. Um, it's got some good articles on kind of mobile and, and e-commerce growth. Um, but th- those are two that I, that I read a lot. And honestly, I get so many that they, it's kind of confusing who's writing them and, and what, but it's like, I mm-hmm. just hone in on what the articles are. And a lot of times it's like pattern matching, right? If I get 10 newsletters, what's the article that showed up five times? <laughs> it's like, yeah. okay, that That's one is probably important to, pay attention to, to. Yeah. 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 And I noticed something about a month ago that you posted on LinkedIn, and this is probably part of part of your um, your weekly activity. That there was a book that you read that had a major impact on you. It was from Nir Eyal. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. And the book is Indistractable: How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. And you wrote a long post about how, despite the fact that this industry is moving at a hundred miles an hour, there's a tendency for a lot of marketers to chase the the shiny object syndrome. And to suddenly just divert their attention to the next latest and greatest tool, the next greatest tactic or whatever it might be, and it's causing them to lose focus. And you really describe this well in your post. Can you tell us a little bit more about how this book impacted your thinking? Yeah. Um, you know, part, part of my newsletter is I try to post a book a month, right? And so that was my book of the month. I can't remember. I think it was May or something. Um, written by Nir Eyal, and um, you might know his his first book, Hooked. You know how to develop mm-hmm. habit forming products. Developed the Hooked model. Yeah. People love it. It's big in, in product design and product marketing. Um, and it's kind of ironic, right? Because he wrote this book about how to get people hooked, and then realized, oh my gosh, like maybe that's not the best thing. How do you also combat that with being indistractable? So it's this kind of big irony. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was reading it because I, uh, you know, you get you get kind of hooked into your work. There's so many distractions with you know Slack messages, email messages. You got this like computer in your pocket that you're picking up all the time. And it was like I took a vacation and I had to turn on airplane mode, and I noticed that I was like getting withdrawal symptoms. You know, I was like, oh my gosh, yeah. what, why am I not connected? And I was like, I have to figure out a way to, to deal with this. And so I, I found this book indistractable and, and read it. And, you know, it's great for all components of your life, but, but certainly in marketing, right? Because there's all of these different people telling you to do different things, right? I think fundamentally it comes down to, you have to know like the strategic imperatives of your company, right? Like what is the commercial goal, right? How are we going to get there? 
And then where is the customer and how am I going to connect that goal with that customer and, and move them, right? And what's the best way to do that? And build that core platform first. I, 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 mm-hmm. I say, you know, double down first, then diversify. Um, yeah. And so thinking about that, I think is, is, is important. And obviously there's, you know, prioritization frameworks like, you know, ICE, you know, what's the impact and confidence and ease and effort or something. And those are really useful for kind of organizing your, your thoughts and ideas. Um, but before you get into that kind of tactical prioritization, I think you have to think first strategically. Mm-hmm. Let's, uh, let's pivot over now to, to something that I think is a, it's a new shiny object, but it's coming from Google. And I think it's something we all should pay attention to. And that is the, uh, the sunsetting, let's call it, of third-party data and the inevitable shift to first-party data. Um, tell me, I have, I have my opinion on this. Uh, I, think it's, I think it's a big deal. I think it's probably coming sooner than most people realize and a lot of marketers aren't prepared. Uh, I'd love to hear your opinion. How, how important is first-party first data going to be in the next, say, 12 months from now? And then how can, how can marketers really start to prepare for that and start to use their first-party data to benefit their marketing? Yeah, the, the, the upcoming cookie apocalypse, Paris, with yeah. Google, Google getting rid of third-party cookies. Yeah, I think, um, look, I think that that world is already here, right? I mean, Apple is yeah. basically launching a war on, on tracking, um, leading the way with privacy, iOS 14.5, now upcoming iOS 15. If you haven't seen the, the Worldwide Developer Conference, I would definitely look mm. into that. Um, crazy stuff is happening, right? And I think leaning into first-party data, it's 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 kind of ironic, right? Because it's it's basically the fundamentals. It's like know your customer, mm-hmm. <laughs> really. Like if if you were to say describe you know first-party data to someone who has no clue what marketing is, it's knowing your customer um, and having them give you information to know them better. Um, and so I think there's tactics that are coming up, right? Like quizzes and surveys and um, personalization, right? Tell us about you so that we can give you a better experience so that we can optimize our product or optimize our marketing or optimize our nurturing. Um, It's really leaning into, you know, your owned marketing and your earned marketing. Um, And for your performance marketing or your paid advertising, right? It's having to move and shift from this one to an individual kind of behavioral method to this contextual method, right? Where are these people? What are they thinking about? What do they consume? How do I make it relevant to them to where they are? Um, but I'm, I'm with you, Paris. I mean, it's, it's huge. And it's definitely something to be thinking about now. Yeah. I, I think for, for us really, uh, we're, we're thinking about really now uh, as an agency having, in addition to our core pillar being performance marketing, really to add two other pillars. One is data science and, and the third is creative, actually. Yep. So I think the, these are going to be the three real pillars of a successful, well, let's say agency or, or an in-house marketing team as well, because uh, the amount of first-party data that is available, in many cases, it's massive. And so first, just understanding how to grapple with the data how to normalize it, how to warehouse it, how to build algorithms on top of it, and then how to import that back into the ad platforms. That's complicated stuff. That's data science stuff. And then there's the creative, which we touched on earlier, which is that is ultimately going to be the fuel that you have to feed these machines in order to be successful. That's the differentiator. So that should be in-house, actually. And I think those functions, those three functions should should be all under one roof, in my opinion. All right. What are well, some what are some ways that you're seeing companies capture first party data? Uh, the most obvious ways are uh, things like email marketing lists and data that lives in CRMs, marketing automation platforms, analytics platforms, payment payment processing platforms. But I think that the next level of first party data is is the product data itself. It's actually looking at engagement, behavioral, uh, the way people use the product and how that 
uh, correlates to lifetime value. And ultimately, uh, first-party data, I think for, for it to be very useful to marketers, is it needs to be manipulated or understood in ways that can predict lifetime value. And if that can be done, that's what the ad platforms need. They need that as their conversion. They don't need a, um, a free, free trial f- conversion where you bid blanket target CPA on everything. They actually would, would really feast on a predict, unique predicted lifetime value for every unique conversion so that they could use their, their AI to do value-based bidding as opposed to um, this, the more simple methods that most SaaS companies use today, which is target CPA. Right. I, that's a very specific case, and I, I'm really looking through it in a lens of performance marketing, particularly in Google Ads. So maybe my view on this is a little bit too narrow. But I think the, the most interesting first-party data is going to come out of the SaaS products themselves. Yeah, I think the, the, the product data is there's a wealth of it, right? It's like how do you tap into that? Yeah, what do you what do you where do you start? Yeah, yeah. I I think you know for for marketers, right, that maybe don't have a product team or they don't have um, or the product team's focused on shipping product, right, and, and new features, and, and rather than kind of pulling up the tooling, certainly there's some SaaS platforms that can help. But I I've seen a lot of kind of low lift value come from surveys, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, the how did you hear about us survey is kind of the classic, you know, first party attribution data, um, mm-hmm. which I used to scoff at, honestly. It was like, what, you're going to ask people how they are? Then people don't know. And now it's like, it's so simple. It's elegant, right? I think there's like simple and actionable is sometimes so much more powerful than, you know, complex and hard to do, you know, hard to execute. And so, you know, that, that's one aspect, but I think also there's just amazing kind of personalization quizzes. A lot of these like e-commerce businesses are, you know, how do you, you know, what, what's the right skincare for you, right? And tell us these five things and we'll give mm-hmm. you a recommendation. But now, you know, five things about that customer. It's pretty, it's pretty awesome. And I think for younger generations in particular, um, I have younger siblings and they're like obsessed with those Buzzfeed quizzes. Have you seen those? Mm-hmm. Right. It's like what yeah. Disney princess character are you based on like what pizza you like, <laughs> but, yeah. but it's like you're conditioned to take these quizzes and get this result. And I think that's a behavior, right. Of a new customer and a new prospect that's coming up that mm-hmm. they're going to be conditioned and used to. And so it's yeah. like, the, if you can take advantage of that and it's pretty easy to put up, you know, you could do it with, Google Forms um, and yeah, make it absolutely. super easy. I think that market a lot of marketers still shy away from creating what they would view as friction in the conversion funnel. But if it's done well, if it's either gamified or if it's, as you said, if, if it's fun, I, I don't think it, it's it's a conversion rate killer. And I think actually that there's a there's a healthy trade off if you can get some more information on that customer as they come in and as they sign up for the first time, and then use that. To, to be smarter about getting the second and the third one. And you can do it in a way that makes it fun and enjoyable for them and even tells them that, hey, we're asking these questions now so that we can provide a better experience for you. We can get you into the right level of product or the right iteration of this product. And I think that the, what you said about your younger siblings and people that are being conditioned now to even expect these type of uh, just fun onboarding kind of experiences, I think that that friction is going away. And I think marketers need to need to turn to that those strategies more in the in the at the point of conversion. Yeah, and it's and it's I think it's only friction if there's no value, right? So yeah, if you ask me ten things and it doesn't change, like if you lie to me, like you lo- you lost me, right? And if I yeah. don't believe you, you lost me. And if it's really hard to answer those questions because your user experience sucks, you lost me, right? But if it's um, you know fun, engaging you're giving me value. It seems obvious. It seems easy. It can actually improve conversion. Like there's this, there's this concept Mm -hmm. of like the breadcrumb technique where you ask one super easy question to get someone engaged and answer. And it triggers this principle of psychology called the commitment principle where you're more Mm -hmm. likely to finish something you've already started. Right. Mm -hmm. And so if you get them to start that simple thing, like simple question, yes or no, piques their curiosity, gets them into it you actually might increase your conversion. Uh, it's way less scary than say clicking the 
get a demo button or buy now, mm -hmm. right? Or like, please <laughs> and put your credit card number here. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, so there's definitely ways to do it, I think. Yeah, excellent. So uh, Cody, let's pivot over now a little bit more towards the investor and VC questions that, that I've, uh, I've prepared here. Um, you work with a lot of CEOs. You've seen a lot of CEOs. Some have marketing backgrounds and others don't. Mm -hmm. Does it really matter or do you think that CEOs who come from marketing have any sort of uh, advantage when it comes to, to raising money? Yeah, that's, it's a great question. You know, I, I think that there, there are a lot of ways to grow a company, right? Um, there is no one way. Um, and I think people who say things like, you know, don't work for a CEO who doesn't get marketing, right? There's like a lot of that going around. And I think the target audience mm -hmm. for that, you know, is a, is a marketer, right? Who's looking for their next company. And maybe it's less enjoyable to work for that type of company. And, you know, maybe for you, you should, you should work somewhere else, right? But in terms of like the success of a company or, you know, are, are is one more, more successful than another? I, I think it's really, it's really about, you know, what's that unique insight that that CEO has and how have they operationalized it? Um, sometimes it's marketing, sometimes it's product, sometimes it's a business model, sometimes it's networks. Um, you know, mm -hmm. personally, I think marketing is a universally applicable function, right? It's a multiplier of, of business success, but it's not necessary in, in every case, right? Um, it could be a benefit. Mm -hmm. Um, but it, but it's, it's really about how can, you know, in my role, how can we understand the company and how they've succeeded and how can we help them along the way, right. And be a partner in their growth. Not, they know how to run their business, right? Like mm -hmm. no one knows your business better than you, right? Like I, I'm not going to tell you Paris how to run hop online. Like, you know, the best about your business and how to do it. I think it's I'd up still to be open investor. to that, by the way, if you decided that you wanted to give me some tips, uh, I'm, I'm all ears. <laughs> Just saying. Yeah. Well, we'll take a coffee offline. All right. Yeah, I hear you. I think, um, well, I've, I've met a bunch of CEOs also in, in my journey. And I think a lot of it, the people that I'm most impressed with are actually the people that really have the humility to understand what are their strengths to double down on their own personal strengths, whether that be marketing or maybe product or maybe operations. Yeah. And then to surround themselves with the people who, who fill the gaps. So if they lack marketing, they know it. They don't try to master something that they're not naturally good at, but they, they go out and get a great marketing person. I think that to me is what stands out most with uh, the exceptional CEOs and leaders that I've, I've come across. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I think, you know, it's, I think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, right? With growth mindset and always be learning and how yeah. do you complement yourself in, in other ways? Um, you know, it's, it's a company is a team sport. So it's, mm -hmm. you know, how do you put the right team together? Yep. So Cody, let's, I'd love to try to get inside of your, your brain when you're analyzing a company as a potential investment. I'm very curious to know if you have a particular process or a framework that you follow when you're when you're checking out a company and what are some of the what are some of the first things that you would look for to give you a sign that there there's real potential with this company. Yeah, I think, you know, when I'm when I'm talking to, you know, head of marketing or, you know, at times a founder or CEO or something, it's like what what I want to understand from a marketing point of view, I kind of focus in a few different areas. You know, one's their their strategy, right? You know, how do they think about marketing as getting them from where they are to where they want to be? Um, how do they think about their customer? How do they think about segmentation? Um, the other aspect is is channels. You know, what what marketing channels are they in? Are they focused on email? Are they focused on organic? Are they focused on paid, right? There's a lot of different ways to grow virality, word of mouth. Um, the other thing I look at is, is, you know, data and measurement, right? You know, how sophisticated is the infrastructure? Are they using data? Are they not using data? Do they have data? Is the data reliable? 
um, trying to understand kind of that, that maturity. And then uh, I think finally the, the last category, which I think is the most important is really about team and resourcing, right? It's like, what's the, what's the size of the team? What are the skill sets of the team? What are the gaps? If you have gaps, um, how are, how are they thinking about, equipping marketing right so sometimes it's are you using tools or do you have a bi team that's feeding data to, to marketers um so i look at kind of those five categories across companies and i try to develop kind of pattern recognition on you know what's a what's great what's okay what could be an area of improvement right that we can help um, and then dig into those areas um, in order to really try to help create value, right? And say, mm -hmm. hey, this is great what you're doing. Here's how we can help scale that. Here's some other areas that you might want to consider that I think could be meaningful for your growth based on other companies um, and really put together, mm -hmm. you know, a, a plan collaboratively, you know, because sometimes it's like, you know, hey, I think, you know, the CEO might say, hey, I think getting more developers to build this new function is going to be more impactful. And that might be true. Um, and so mm -hmm. it's, it's really staying, staying humble to, to that. Yeah. One thing that I didn't hear you say just now is a deep analysis of, of the product in its competitive landscape. And I want to, I just want to ask you about that as part of your analysis. And I, I think this is more along the lines of, a, uh, the, the positioning really, if the product, let's say that the product looks good, but. In, in a lot of ways, maybe there are other products that are similar. It's a crowded space. It's a competitive category. Maybe the lines around that category are a little bit blurry, which is happening a lot in SaaS. How do you assess whether or not a particular product can emerge and win uh, number one, number two, or number three in a category when you look two or three years out, when you imagine that category to be fully matured? How do you know that these guys have nailed their positioning? And this this is the product that's going to be a a number one or number two in this, in this space? Yeah. You know, I think, um, you know, I'm, I, I'm one of, of many on, on the team, right. And we have phenomenal, um, team of in investment professionals who are looking at companies all day, every day. Um, and they're really leading the kind of overall, uh, diligence of a company and in, in terms of the, you know, why is this going to be the, the winner, right? What's their market potential? What is, what's the competitive set? Um, I bring kind of a marketing lens to that um, and try to aid in, in some of that um, executionally and strategically. I mm. think your question on positioning and differentiation is, is super important. And do they have a clear point of view on that, right? Or is that something that, that could, be, could be improved? If you're looking at business metrics, right? You can look at retention. You can look at NPS scores, you can look at, mm -hmm. you know, uh, social listening, how are their comments and reviews and things like that. Those are like three pretty core areas to see, yeah. um, you know, if you have great retention, you have a great product, you probably have better word of mouth. If you have a great NPS score, you've got a great product, mm -hmm. great services, probably better word of yeah. mouth. If you have great reviews, um, you know, that is a really good kind of indication of you're onto something here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So back to back to the marketing side of things a little bit. I think a lot of uh, I imagine a lot of times you're also trying to determine the scalability of of a particular company and whether their marketing strategy. You mentioned you look at the marketing strategy. Do you try to analyze the extent to which it can scale with the current channel mix that they have, or if not, how do you look at how do you look at the scalability of a marketing strategy to determine yeah this is scalable. Yeah, I think um, it's a great question and it's super important. And it probably took me, you know, I you use this, people use this word scale and scalability all the time, right? Probably took yeah. me like five years in business after to really understand like, oh, you know, scalability, right, is improving, increasing volume while improving efficiency. It's both, right? It's different from mm -hmm. growth. Um, and so if something is scalable, you know, what does that really mean? Okay. If I put an extra one resource unit, I can get two, you know, greater than one back. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's a scalable model. And so I think, you know, I try to ask about how are we increasing volume, but how are we also improving efficiency? 
Um, and, and, you know, there's obviously diminishing marginal return on s- certain things and you can't do the same thing over and over again. And so it's trying to think about, you know, is there a strategy around improving lifetime value or decreasing CAC or, um, using technology to become, you know, faster, right. Um, as ways to balance that approach. Um, mm-hmm. in order to really move the bo- both the volume metric and the efficiency metric. Yeah. I think that's a really important point that you just made, that growth and scale are two different things. Yeah. Growth with diminish- diminishing marginal returns is just simply a fast track to bankruptcy, really. I mean, you, you, no viable business can can ultimately sustain that, uh, that there's no way. But scale means that actually as you're accelerating growth, you're also improving your core unit economics at the same time, which, which can seem really daunting, but I think that it is, it is, uh, it is possible. And that is actually what differentiates scale from, from growth. So yeah, that was really helpful that you, um, that you gave us that uh, distinction. Yeah, that was an aha for me, for sure. And it was, Mm -hmm. it kind of was one of those things where it was like, oh yeah, you know, um, why did, why I had never thought of that. Um, but it's, but it's important to really think about it because I had, you know, combined the two before it was like, you know, how can this scale? It was like, okay, how do I grow? You know, how do you get bigger? Um, but scale is very Mm -hmm. different. Yeah. I mean, I suppose anybody can grow by just throwing more money into your marketing, but, um, no, it's not, it doesn't quite work that way. Yeah. Um, Let's let's go over now to the relationship side of of your business, the VC business, and um, this to me, I'm really interested to learn more about how relationships change, both before and after fundraising. And I imagine that a lot of times you all come in and you invest in a company that has a a really unique culture, and they're intent on preserving that culture. They're, they're used to being relatively autonomous, maybe. maybe um, you know, that's something that they're very proud of, fiercely proud of. And then you all come in and, and of course, now you are, you all have real authority and, and there's, there's a different dynamic. So the question is really two parts. How, how do the relationships between your portfolio companies and, you, and your teams, how do those relationships change and evolve both before the, the fundraising event and after the fundraising event? And then how do you assure those companies that you invest in that they can still preserve their culture when you're, when you're there on board, you know, working shoulder to shoulder with them? Yeah. Well, I think, I think it's important to know that there's different types of investors, right? There's minority investors, there's majority investors, there's growth investors, there's kind of turnaround investors. Um, and there's, there's, you know, a lot of different ways and sources that you can get capital, right? Um, and ultimately, you know, it's about a partnership and it's about finding the right fit. Um, and it sounds kind of, I don't know, generic, but really it's about trust, you know? Um, and developing that trust and that relationship before the fundraising event um, is, is critical, right? And you want I mean, I would hope on both sides, there's, there's trust. There has to be like, that's fundamental to success, you know, in any relationship. Um, and, you know, after fundraising, if you've built that trust, you know, it's excitement. It's like, all right, you know, we, we know each other. We're excited to get going. Like, here we go. Um, we found all of this stuff together. There's this unique way to grow. Um, and, and it's, you know, I, in, in, in my point of view, right. It's, it's, um, we invest in companies for a reason and they're successful for a reason. And we don't want to change why you're successful. We want to have you continue to be successful and, and help you in the areas that you think could be more successful. Right. Um, a lot of times it's, you know, Hey, we're doing great in North America and we want to expand internationally. We have no idea how to do that. And it's like, okay, well, if that's the case, find a fit, you know, find a partner who's helped other companies accomplish that goal, who's got a track record of doing it and references and, and trust, and they can help you accomplish that goal. Um, so it's about kind of 
finding that fit between vision, capabilities, mm -hmm. sector expertise. And then, you know, ultimately it's, it's people, right, Paris? I mean, it's like, yeah. it, I'm sure as an agency, it's about trust too. It's about developing those relationships and um, building that trust so that you can be effective together. Mm -hmm. And if I were to flip that question in, in reverse from the perspective of the, the company who, who may have a few uh, different options when it comes to partnering with people, how, how would you advise a, a company who has a few different investment options to go about selecting the best fit for them? Yeah, you know, it's, it's aligning on vision, right? Where, where do you want to be? Um, can they help take you there? Right. Have they helped others go there before? Um, do you trust them? Do you enjoy them? Um, do they have sector expertise? So a lot of times, you know, have, do they know your market? Have they been in your market before? Do they have a unique point of view? Um, and then, you know, just like, you know, buying software, buying e-commerce, right? It's like social proof. Like what's the references, you know, do mm -hmm. references They are hiring a great person, right? What do others yeah. have to say about them? Um, and that is a great way if you can find that unique combination of, hey, you know, they get my business, they appreciate my business, they understand my vision, they've helped others go here before. Um, I trust them, I enjoy them, hopefully. Right. It should be mm -hmm. fun too. Like this stuff should be fun. It better be because you're going to be spending a hell of a lot of time together. Yeah. So you better then, like just hanging out with them. Yeah. Yeah. So you spend a lot of time together. Yeah. That's, that's great. And, and that's extremely helpful. Uh, Cody, is there anything that I didn't ask you that you feel like would be beneficial for our audience to know? Yeah, I think, um, you asked a lot of questions, really great ones, by the way. So I just want nice. to say thanks, Paris, for, for having me on. My pleasure. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, you know, I'll just go back to, to, to always be learning, right? Always be growing. Um, and, you know, podcasts like this is a great way. You're not going to agree with everybody. And I think that's fine, right? Like, don't surround yourself in an echo chamber. Learn from different points of view. Um, mm -hmm. I love listening to podcasts of, of different people and being like, huh, that's an interesting thing. Like, I don't know if I really agree with that. But that's an important like thought experiment to have with your head because it can really refine your point mm -hmm. of view or, you know, oh, interesting. That, that actually might be right. So I think, you know, we're in this amazing period in the world, right. Of being able to connect with so many. I mean, I don't know. We're like so many miles away from each other, Paris. Like I think you're eight, nine hours ahead of me and we're talking together. Yeah. This is amazing on different sides of the world. And so it's, it's just yeah. a great, time to learn and to, to meet others and, and to connect. And obviously it's been a challenging year, uh, not being able to connect physically. And so trying to connect in this way, I think it is really powerful. Excellent. Cody, can you just let everybody know where they can find you online? And, and you said you're, you're addicted to LinkedIn. So they probably want to know where they can find your, your weekly newsletter too on LinkedIn. Yeah. Yeah. You can, you can find me on, on LinkedIn. Um, Cody Lee, I'm uh, if you type Cody Lee marketing, hopefully I'll, I'll come up. Um, you know, I try to write a, a weekly post under marketing accelerated performance um, or your weekly map. Um, that's the, the acronym MAP map marketing accelerated performance. So if you search the hashtag your weekly map, you'll find a lot of posts. You can follow that or definitely feel free to connect with me. I'm also on a great platform called growth mentor where you can sign up for some sessions with me to, to talk through your challenges. Um, but I, I love connecting and happy to meet anyone who's out there and wants to say hi. Great. Cody, thanks so much for being with me. I think you dropped some amazing knowledge and I uh, really appreciate your time. I appreciate you, Paris. Thanks so much for having me. Sure. Another great episode in the books. Hope you enjoyed it. If you want to get notified when future episodes drop, be sure to subscribe to Paris Talks Marketing on your favorite podcast player. And to learn more about SaaS growth marketing, visit hop.online. That's hop, H-O-P, 
www.thinkingdigital.online. Have a great day.